Amen. I'm sure Pastor Keith loves all that attention. Many people, somebody did not just ask, how old is he? I would make a guess, but it would be, I really, I'm going to pray that we see Pastor Keith at the altar today for that lie he just told in church. It's open, brother. Whenever, it's open. No, we are so thankful you're here with us this morning, and uh, we are excited for this week. Um, I mentioned it in the weeks previously, uh, a couple weeks ago, we, we talked about uh, how do we prepare our hearts for the coming holidays of Thanksgiving and Christmas? How do we get our minds and our hearts ready for all that God would have for us? And I made a comment that I still believe is so true today, that honestly, in the, in the celebrations of Thanksgiving and Christmas, uh, no one should be able to celebrate those uh, more joyfully than Christians, those that know Christ. Um, who can be more thankful than a follower of Christ? Who could be uh, more appreciative of the greatest gift, which is Christ as salva- Savior in salvation? And so uh, I pray that as you approach this week, maybe you've got some things to do. Maybe you've got people coming over your house. Uh, maybe you've got meals to make, things to buy for groceries, all those kind of things. Uh, be on guard this week. Do not let the enemy or your flesh rob you of your joy during this season. Enjoy every moment. And we talked about it before. How do we enjoy every moment? We enjoy every moment by looking beyond ourselves, as we've demonstrated so many of you have done this last week with fruit baskets and shoe boxes and so many things. And so continue to do that as we look forward to what the Lord has for us this week. And so as we get ready to prepare for Thanksgiving, uh, we always try to do communion the Sunday before Thanksgiving. We do that because we believe it is a great way to express thanks for all that Christ did for us while on earth. And so in just a little bit here, we're going to take part of the Lord's Supper. And here at North Goodland, in case we don't mention it later, we do not uh, require you to be a member of our church to partake of the Lord's Supper. Uh, We practice what is called open communion. And what that means is that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you've received him as your Savior, uh, that we invite you to take part in communion with us here at the end of the service. Uh, We would enjoy that time. I, I, I really do honestly love this time of communion. And just coming together and being able to, uh, and it sounds so simple, but when you pass that tray to the person next to you and you look them in the eye as a brother or sister in Christ, and you get to say, this is the body which was broken for you. This is the blood that was spilled for you. And you celebrate that intimacy in the body of Christ. I just think there's no greater way to worship than to just celebrate what Christ did for us through the cross of Christ and just all that he gave us in the finished work of the cross. And so I pray that in a little bit here that we're going to have that attitude among us. That, that if there's anyone here with any kind of, I don't know, offense or an ought between somebody in this room, uh, my prayer is I would encourage you, as, as Jesus does in the book of Matthew, to take time this morning, maybe during the invitation, and maybe you'd go to somebody and just say, look, I'm really sorry for this, or I forgive you for that. And get that right in your heart before we come together over the Lord's table and celebrate this communion. So however the Lord is leading, I enjoy it this time so much, celebrating the body of Christ with you. And the blood of Christ as well as we celebrate. And so as I was going through this week, I was thinking about this whole idea. And this whole idea of coming together over the the communion table. And I was thinking, what is the best way that we could really celebrate what Christ did for us? I mean, that's what this is all about, right? This time of coming together. Uh, Some of you grew up in churches or uh, denominations where the communion meant more than it probably really should have. What I mean is, um, this is not the literal body and blood of Christ. We do this in remembrance of what Christ did for us. Uh, We take the cup and we take the bread and we believe that it is symbolic of the Last Supper we read about in Scripture of what Christ 
did for us by giving himself as a sacrifice for our sins. And so I was thinking this week, as we do that, it's really easy to do that this morning and then leave and kind of forget all about it. And I kind of use an illustration in my mind, and it's something that's always, as long as we've done communion here, it's made me think of this. And I don't mean it's bad, and some of you are going to be hesitant to do it now, so I really kind of debated whether I should say this, but I'm going to. There's these little things in the chairs in front of you. You guys can look at them if you want to. There's these little holes. Okay, if you've never ever, like, what is that hole there for? That's for the little cup that we're going to give you. You drink it, and then you stick it in that little hole, okay? At the old building, in the pews, they had them next to, like, the hymnal rack thing. Some of you guys that are been at churches with pews, you know what I'm talking about? You're like, oh, yeah, okay? All the kids, I don't know what this was about, but all the kids, and maybe you guys have seen this before, some of the younger kids that would be in there, they would just go crazy trying to collect as many cups as possible. And I saw Austin Blount one time, I'm not kidding you, a stack like this. And he's just running around, and it's just like waving all the little juice everywhere. And I'm like, pastor's kid, man, look at this guy, just going crazy. And so uh, in a little bit, we're going to do that, but there's... When we finish communion here and we stand and everyone prays and then we dismiss you guys, there's always this sound of those cups hitting those chairs. And every time I hear that, this thought rises up inside of me that, okay, don't let that be the end of it. Don't let that sound be like the final sound of that communion. Okay, now we're done, we're moving on. I don't know why that's always just kind of stuck in my head. But as you hear that sound this morning, and please don't feel like, you know, guilty, like I'm not putting it in there because I'm not going to be his illustration. That's not going to happen. Nope, I'm taking this thing home with me. I'm going to bring it back next communion, wash it out, use it again. That's how godly I am, okay? That's how much I take communion seriously. No, okay, don't do that with the bread either, okay? We're not going to try to like, anyway, um, some of you are taking that illustration way too far. But anyway, when we leave here today, This act of communion is not meant to be done in this moment, and we remember in this moment. But when you study the New Testament, man, they lived and followed the sacrifice of Christ to the point where they were willing to give everything for him. And so it draw my attention to this idea, what what could we do, how could we live in the coming weeks, in the coming months, that would best celebrate this, that would best memorialize this? I guess the question I'm asking is, what makes us as followers of Christ different in this world that would best communicate the truth of this kind of a sacrifice that Christ gave us? And there's a lot of answers to that question, right? There's a lot of things we could do. Some of you might say, well, do things like uh, Operation Christmas Child, you know, giving the kids in need. Some of you might give food to a neighbor to, lo- to just show them that you care for them. Uh, some of you might change your behavior, You know, the best way to remember the sacrifice of Christ for the forgiveness of my sins is I'm going to live in a way that I'm going to strive to not sin. I'm going to not give in to those temptations because I want to honor him in all things. And all those things are good and all those things are fine and they're biblical. Romans 6, don't surrender your members to these unrighteous deeds and acts. No, rather than that, give yourself to righteousness, Paul says. So there's nothing wrong with saying, I'm going to strive to not give in to temptation because I want to best memorialize what Christ did for me. But I believe that if we sum it all down, we kind, of, we kind of boil it all down. It comes down to what we just sang about, the love of Christ. I think the best way to celebrate and memorialize this act that Christ gave us is to live in a way that demonstrates his love for others. What makes us different? What changes us at the moment of salvation that we become a new creature? All things are passed away. All things are become new. And we go into this world. And then how do we best represent Christ's love for the world? We can tell them about it. 
and we should. But maybe we should tell them and show them. Maybe we could do both. And that would be the best way. What makes us different? Your behaviors or the lack thereof are not what's marking you as a follower of Christ. I pray there is a change in behavior. But that's not what distinguishes us as followers of Christ. What distinguishes us is we've received personally the love of Christ into our lives. And then that overflows into a love for others. And so I want us to kind of think through this topic. And I know you're thinking to yourself, man, I learned about the love of God for me in in Sunday school or junior church. I mean, you know, I I learned John 3.16. I know Jesus loves everyone. Jesus loves the world. I know all of this. But knowledge of the love of Christ is vastly different than application of the love of Christ. You can know a lot about the love of Christ, but are you applying it to your life where it changes you, it shapes you, it forms you more into who Christ would have you to be? See, the love of Christ is not just head knowledge that we just learn about in a book or we study in scriptures or we memorize John 3.16. It's something we live out daily in our lives as we allow him to love others through us. And what I want to do this morning is I want to kind of, I know it's a real simple topic, but I want to walk through this, and I want to share with you guys a story from history, the history of our world, but also through church history. And I want to read this through. And as I read this through, I came across this, and it just blew me away when I was reading about this here in the last couple of weeks and studying about the history of this whole thing. And I want to read this through, and I want you to see and think through how can this be the church today? How can this be something that God would use our church to have the same effect today? So I'm going to read through. It's kind of lengthy, but just bear with me. And I want to read this. And some of you may have heard this before um, from history as you've studied different things. But I want to read through here. And I want you to be thinking about, okay, how can our church be this kind of a church? History tells us the Roman world faced disaster in the third century with the arrival of a great plague that blanketed the empire. Although those in the empire responded with fear, understandably so, Christians stood out during what became a defining moment in the new faith. New faith. This is still a very young thing, Christianity. The plague of Cyprian arrived in the Roman Empire via soldiers or uh, traders that were coming through trade routes and was highly contagious. First-hand accounts of the day said that this disease brought, and this is going to get kind of graphic, and I apologize. I don't mean to to gross anyone out. But I want you to understand the the height of this disease, the effect of this, this disease. And then I want you to hear how Christians responded to this. Firsthand accounts of the day said the disease brought with it diarrhea, vomiting, bleeding eyes, decaying limbs that would soon then fall off, damage to hearing and sight, This plague affected the empire from A.D. 250 to A.D. 270. It spread rapidly, killing estimates of 300 to 500,000 people. Crowded city life and primitive medical knowledge, as well as a lack of understanding sanitation, caused the disease to spread like wildfire. Pagan priests, doctors, government officials and leaders and other residents fearfully fled the cities in an effort to avoid catching the disease. Left behind in the cities were the sick, the elderly, the poor, and the dying. Christians, once again in history, faced an opportunity to practice Jesus' teachings about loving 
and caring for others. In many cities across the Roman Empire, the Christians became the primary physicians and caregivers of the sick. Think about that for a second. The pagan priests, the average people, they were gone. They were leaving. The wealthy were out. Leaving behind the elderly and the sick and the poor who couldn't do anything for themselves. And the Christians, the church, stepped up, became the primary caregivers for the sick. While they recognized, this is key, while they recognized they were not immune to the plague, they were confident that this world was not their ultimate destination. With this confidence, they faced the plague and gave words of encouragement and comfort. They were Christ to those in their worst standing. What drove them to do this? This is a highly contagious disease. What do you think happened to the Christians that were being caregivers? How many of them do you think died when they didn't have to because they could have just left like everyone else, but instead they stayed? They ministered. They cared for the sick. And I hear that. And this is 250 A.D. This is not 2015. But when you study the early history of the church, you're going to find out they were radically different than the culture around them. When everybody else is leaving because it's just too difficult, I don't want to lose my life to help this person. Christians were the first ones in line to stand up and stand out and say, we'll take care of them. I, we don't care if we lose our life. It doesn't matter because this world is not our home. Man, they had confidence yeah, we lose our life, but look what we give. We give the love of Christ. In just a little bit, I'll tell you the result of this encounter and how the church was affected through this. But before we get there, I want us to think about, man, how is God calling our church to be the church today? What compelled these Christians to willingly lay down their lives and say, we'll go care for these people that nobody else wants to pay attention to? We'll go. We'll risk our lives for these people. What would drive them to do that? Religion? Convenience? Comfort? Popularity? Who are they popular with? All the important people are gone. And yet again, we have to go back and say, man, there is a great difference. And I know today's culture and today's day and age, there's these lies being kind of perpetrated, not only in schools, but also on the internet, that there's no difference in religion. All religions are the same. Anyone that says that has never actually studied religion, never actually studied the belief systems of the major religions of the world. Because yes, of the major religions, there are some great similarities among most of them. Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, and Judaism all are based on what you do for God. But there's this belief system that exists called Christianity. And it's in the confines of Christianity that it's not about what we do for him, but about what he did for us. It's about believing that I'm not good enough on my own. I can't work my way to salvation. I can't be reincarnated enough times to gain nirvana or their heaven. I need someone who is outside the situation to come inside my sphere and affect change. 
You see, that's why we can't fix ourselves because we were born with this problem. We have this all around us. It's saturating our humanity. But Jesus, outside, came in willingly, took on himself flesh, lived a sinless life, died on a sinner's cross, was buried in a borrowed tomb, rose again the third day, and now we, by putting our faith and trust in that forgiveness, that act of salvation, we can be saved, the Bible says. And so we come together and we gather around this table and we take the bread and we take the cup and some of you are going to take it and not even, it's not even going to click in your mind what you're doing. And so I pray before we ever get to that moment in the service, begin now to say, Holy Spirit of God, I want to know more than ever before what this bread and what this cup represents. Because it makes me different than everyone else. It makes me different because I'm a follower of Christ. And when everyone else wants to leave and everyone wants to bail because it's getting too tough, we're going to stand as followers of Christ, as his church, and we're going to love those that are unlovable. You know how we can love someone that's unlovable? Because God loved us when we were his enemies, the Bible says. John chapter 15 and verse 17 John chapter 15 and verse 17, such a simple verse. But what makes us a difference as followers of Christ? It's not doing this or not doing that. It's not going to church. It's none of those things that make you different at its core. All of the things that you think of behavior-wise, habit-wise, things that we do in our actions and our thoughts, they're all based in one core truth that we have experienced firsthand the love of Christ, and that love changes us. And now we're able to do what Jesus asked of us. John 15 and verse 17. It says, these things I command you, that you love one another. These things I command you, that you love one another. How in the world can I love someone else? I must first experience true everlasting, eternal, soul-changing, life-changing love. And how do I experience that? But only through Christ. Now this is where we start thinking about, well, wait a minute, didn't, didn't churches do this? And haven't Christians done this? And I know Christians who weren't very loving to me. Yes, at times, Christians don't follow what Christ asked of them because we're not perfect but do not let a Christian's lack of adherence to the word of God change your thinking about the writer and the author of the word of God. Man, I've met people say that. Well, I don't really know. You, you Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. Like that's a Christian problem. Because there's no hypocrites in the world but in the church, right? Like the nurse that comes in off her smoke break to check my vitals when I'm in the hospital. That's called hypocrisy. <laughs> The government official that says, I cannot lie. <laughs> Period. Hypocrisy. No, it's, it's everywhere. We, we all struggle with this issue of wanting to do, but then not doing. And so if you know a Christian that's not been very loving to you, I apologize. But that's a follower of Christ not adhering to the word of God then. But that doesn't change Christ. Oh, no, what about when Christians did this and Christians did that? Christians did those things not following Christ. But when you look at the words of Christ, 
Man, he says, no, 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 experience my love. Jesus made it clear that our love for each other will demonstrate our connection to Christ. But our love doesn't stop just at the church door. In fact, when we love our neighbor as ourselves, we are the most Christ-like. Two things real quickly as we go through the service today, kind of preparing our hearts for this time of communion, but also for the coming weeks. There is an inward love of Christ that makes us different. An inward love of Christ that makes us different. John 15, you're already there. Look at verse 8. We have all been loved by Christ as his followers, as those that are professing to know him. John 15 and verse 8. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. So shall you be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. All right, if, if, you, if, you're, if you're here this morning and you're starting to feel like, man, nobody loves me, nobody cares for me. It was so funny. Last night I, I get on Facebook and I never get those Facebook message things like through Messenger and it's like share this or pass this on or whatever. You guys know what I'm talking about? They used to do them with email. I, don't, I can't remember what they're called now. But anyway, like, like chain, yeah, chain things. Like forward these on to 10 different people. Okay, if you get the ones that say like tell 10 different people God loves them or you hate Jesus, just delete that. Okay, that's... Don't be manipulated like that, okay? It's ridiculous. If you love Jesus, you'll share this. If you, like, don't share it, you love Satan, okay? That's, no, no. But we get these things. I got one, and it was this video thing, and I was like, oh, it's one of these chain things. It's not from anybody in the church. It's actually from someone from a church out in California that we had the chance to minister with. And, and so I was like, you're debating, right? Like, what? And it's just some guy in a car with the camera, like, here, you know, like sitting in a parking lot or something, and just like, what's he going to say? Is, I mean, am I going to be happy when I'm done listening to this? Or am I going to be angry? Like, you just never know what people say, right? And let's be real. Like, people say stuff. Don't it just make you mad sometimes? Because you're like, really? So I pushed on it, and I pushed play. And you know what it was? Here's what it was. It was from a guy that I met out in California. And all it was was this guy saying over and over again, you're awesome. Man, you're awesome. Jesus loves you. I love you. Man, you're awesome. You're doing great things. You're awesome. And then he says at the end, tell someone that they're awesome this week. Tell someone that God loves them this week. Because you know what? We just don't hear that enough. And I thought, how true is that? So I was really happy after I listened to it. I was like, amen, awesome, okay? The next one may not have that effect. But the point being, I want you guys to know, if you're sitting here today, and because of whatever you've gone through in your life or you're currently going through, you start doubting the love of God for you, and what did Jesus just say? The exact same love the Father has for the Son, Jesus has for you. Like, that's crazy. I can't even comprehend really love from one person to another. Like, I'm blown away. Every time Sandra tells me she loves me, I'm like, still? Okay, we're good? All right. Okay. Must not have messed up too bad this week, so we're good. I mean, that kind of love, it, it honestly boggles my mind. Like, how can you love me like you say you do when I know all my weaknesses and faults? Like, that doesn't, like, it, it hurts my brain to try to figure that out. But then we got to try to understand the love of God the Father for the love of the Son in Jesus Christ. Like, that kind of a love relationship. I can't even understand that. And then Jesus says, I love you that much. And so as you're going through your life or your week or whatever, and you're like, oh, I just don't know. Stop doubting. Start trusting the words of Jesus Christ. He says, I love you this much. And when you start doubting that, guess what happens? 
The enemy starts whispering. Your flesh starts whispering doubts. Your prayer life changes. All of a sudden, you're trying to convince God to love you instead of just living and breathing and praying in his love. Jesus says, no, 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 no. There's an inward love of Christ that I have for you. We have experienced the love of God, and at that moment of salvation, that love took up residence in our lives by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. So many people know that God loves us, right? John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. And we stop there, and we think Jesus kind of just went along because Jesus was in submission to the Father. He died on the cross for our sins. Like somehow we think it's Jesus' love for the Father that allowed him to die for us. No, no, no. It's his love for the Father and his love for you that led him to die on a cross for your sins. And if you would just but pray and cry out to him and say, I'm sorry for my sin. I ask you to forgive me of my sin. I surrender my life to you. You are Lord and Savior of my life. And I will follow you wholeheartedly. And experiencing that love. And then that love takes up residence in you. And it doesn't just stay in you. As we go through this life, this love takes up residence, but we have to choose willingly to continue in his love. Look at the verse in verse 9 as it continues. It says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Continue you in my love. Now, I've always found this interesting. Do we have the love of God at salvation? Yes or no? Yes. Okay, that was, that was a little rough, but we'll get there. Okay, yes. It's my fault. I ask a lot of trick questions sometimes. You guys are like, you're going to get me again. Not going to happen. But then he says, continue in my love. Well, what, is he, what in the world does he mean by continuing in his love? Look at the entire context of the chapter to understand. He's saying, abide in me. Abide in my word. I've given you my love. Now abide or continue in my love. And it means we just dwell on it and we experience it practically. Jesus says that as we abide in him, we will produce fruit as his disciples. And in doing such, we will continue in his love. Isn't it amazing that dwelling in the love of God for us, dwelling in the love of Christ for us, continuing in it, is producing fruit of making disciples among other people? Did you see that? Look at verse 8 again. It says, Herein is my Father glorified. So the Father is glorified when you bear much fruit. So my disciples. What does it mean to bear fruit? It means to make disciples. We went over this in our men's Bible study. Every disciple making disciples. There's this misnomer in the church that I can be a Christian and not care about making disciples. That's nowhere in the New Testament. However, it's all over the New Testament that as I follow Christ, I desire, I hunger to make disciples for Christ. Because then he says this, he says, it's when you're producing fruit that God is glorified and you're my disciples. Do you see that connection there? But he doesn't stop there. It's not just go make disciples because I'm telling you to. He says, no, no, you'll make disciples when you understand I love you and you have my love in you. So what drives us to witness and share our faith? Not I want to see so-and-so change their behavior or I want to see so-and-so stop doing this and start doing that. It's I love them and I understand God loves them, so I need to make disciples. I need to share Christ and see them come to know Christ as their Savior. That's what drives us. That's what compels us to go. As a result of abiding or continuing in his love, not just making disciples and glorifying the Father, but look at verse 11. He says, these things have I spoken unto you. What things? Everything he just said. That my joy might be, remain in you and that your joy might be full. 
I'm continuing in his love. I'm understanding I'm loved. And what's the result of that? My joy is full. His joy in me and my joy is full. What does that mean? I don't allow other people to rob me of the joy that I have in Christ. And when circumstances rise up, we sang it. No matter if it's the good or the bad, he's still on his throne. Amen? And not only is he still on his throne, but that God who is on his throne loves you, cares for you, died for you in the person of Jesus Christ. And so when you go through a rocky season or a bad time, guess what? You still have joy. Why? Because you're continuing in his love. You know that you are loved by him. Matthew Henry, a commentator, said this about this passage, and it's a little lengthy, but I want to read all of it because I think it's just powerful stuff of what he says, and he could say it so much better than I can. Listen to what Matthew Henry says. Those whom God loves as a father may despise the hatred of all the world as the father loved Christ who was most worthy... So he loved his disciples who were unworthy. All that love the Savior should continue in their love to him and take all occasions to show it. The joy of the hypocrite is but for a moment, but the joy of those who abide in Christ's love is a continual feast. They are to show their love to him by keeping his commandments. If the same power that first shed abroad the love of Christ in our hearts did not keep us in that love, we should not long abide in it. Christ's love to us should direct us to love each other. He speaks as about to give many things in charge, yet names this only. But it includes many duties. You know what he means here? If you look at John chapter 15, look at verse 17 again. It says, these things I command you, that you love one another. These things, something that gives this whole list of things we got to do. But then he says, just love one another. Because see, loving one another carries with it this great weight of doing all these other activities. We have an inward love of Christ. We have been loved by him. We have an inward love of Christ that makes us different. But an inward love of Christ also makes us love others. An inward love of Christ makes us love others. We do not have to work at loving others, by the way. I have heard Christians say that before Christ, they were not very loving people. Then they were selfish and greedy and kind of self-contained. Then as they began to follow Christ through salvation, they discovered they are more loving and think of others. Did you know anyone like this? Maybe you've experienced this. Before Christ, you were very selfish and kind of all about me, not very loving. And then Christ came along and all of a sudden you just find yourself loving others and caring for others and thinking of others. This is a natural or rather supernatural byproduct of finding the love of Christ. We must, however, be on guard when our flesh or old way of thinking, wanting to creep up or distract or fill our minds with selfish thoughts. It's not that we work on loving others. We merely allow the natural expression of his love to flow out of us. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.16, For who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to teach him? But we understand these things, for we have the mind of Christ. Then he goes on to say in Philippians 2.5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Isn't that an amazing paradox that the Apostle Paul writes out there? He says, you already have the mind of Christ. And then he tells the Philippian church, you should have the mind of Christ and live as though you are living in the mind of Christ. Well, do we have it or do we need to go get it? Do we have it already or do we need to work at it and make it happen? The answer is we have the mind of Christ but then we need to be careful that we are allowing the mind of Christ to rule and reign in our lives. And how do we do that in Philippians 2? Think of others. 
Put others before yourself. Honor others before you. Be in the back seat and be okay with being in the back seat. The mind of Christ is to serve others who even don't deserve it. And what did Jesus say while on earth? He said, I did not come to be ministered unto, but to minister, but to give love to those in need. And so as we have the mind of Christ given to us already, we don't need to work on it, but we must be in guard against allowing our old man to creep up and to kind of show itself in selfish ways. You see, we do not have to work on loving others. The fruit of the Spirit will produce more fruits, more love. Jesus says that we abide in him and his love, and there will be fruit that is produced by the Holy Spirit of God in us. I believe that when fruit is produced, it is led, fed, and watered by the love of Christ in us. <clears throat> I want you to think about that for a moment. When that fruit is produced by the Holy Spirit, it is led by the Holy Spirit, it is fed by the Holy Spirit, and watered by the love of Christ in us. Jesus is teaching in John 15 about the coming of the Holy Spirit and his power in his disciples in the church. And I don't think it's an accident that he talks about love here as a part of what the Holy Spirit is going to do in our lives. Basically, if you're not a very loving person and you feel like you're struggling with that, it's not going, God, make me more loving. God, make me more loving. God, change this behavior or change this situation or help me to be more loving in my words. No, no, no. It's, Lord God, I pray that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would draw me close to you in abiding relationship with you. I pray that you would use me to be an example and a testimony and a disciple maker of you. And as you're drawing close to him, a byproduct of that will be you'll be more loving and more kind. And you'll show more care for those around you. Stop trying to love. And just let the Spirit work through you and watch him use you to make the greatest impact for his kingdom. I read you that story at the beginning about what happened in the early church. These Christians that were so adamant to serve and to care for them. So what was the result of those followers of Christ ministering to those that were sick? Those that survived or those in the communities that heard of the love of these Christians after this plague, or even during, converted to Christianity. Around 260 A.D., about halfway through this plague, a writer in the, world, in the Roman Empire wrote this, summing up the Christian attitude towards the plague. And this is what he said. Most of our brother Christians showed unabounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. There's that one another again. And Jesus seems to say we should love one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life sincerely happy. For they were infected by others with disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many, in nursing and curing for others, transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. This is not a Christian author writing this. This is someone in the world that just saw what the church did and said, man, I have to write this, I have to share this about their unabounded love and loyalty to the sick. That last phrase, it just kind of shakes me. Many, in nursing and curing others, 
transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. This response drew such a large response from the pagan religious groups that many turned to Christ. The church grew so much that by 313 AD, the emperor made Christianity legal because such a large percentage of the Roman Empire was now Christian by that time. So I have to ask you a question that I've asked myself all week. How are you loving your neighbor? What's too inconvenient for you? What is God leading you to do to show love to someone and you've said no because I just don't have the time? And you might say, oh, that's an extreme case. You can't use that. That's an extreme situation. No, 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 no. That's Christianity. If you read this New Testament, you're going to find out that's just normal in the book of Acts. That kind of a love, that kind of a self-sacrifice. And let's be real, that's why Jesus demonstrated for us what it meant to sacrifice everything. Because now we, by his grace and by his love, can do the very same thing. But we just got to be willing to be made a little bit inconvenienced. Be a little bit uncomfortable. Go a little bit out of our way. Do you think these Christians were like, yes, you know what? This is a great idea. We're so happy to go and risk our very lives to serve our neighbors in love. I believe there was concern. I believe they had doubts. I believe they were fearful because they're human. But here's what I see. In spite of all that, they said, no, no, no. But we need to love as Christ would love. How did Jesus treat the lepers in his day in the Gospels? When everybody else was fleeing them and shunning them and kicking them out, how did Jesus respond to them? He walked up and in most cases touched them and said, be healed. The creator God, the one that spoke everything into existence, could have said, be healed. Could have thought, be healed. And they're healed instantly. Never would have had to even see them, let alone touch them. But why in the world would he touch them? Because some of them went decades without a human touch. And he said, I'm going to model for you my love for you. That this surface stuff doesn't change anything. I still love you. And so when you hear stories like this about our church history, I don't know what it does to you, but I know what it does to me. It rises up in me this desire to be the church. To stop making excuses about convenience and time and plans and whatever else. And maybe not take the easy road, but look for the greatest way to love my neighbor as myself. Because I've been loved by the Father and by the Son. And I'm abiding and continuing that love and making disciples. Here's the thing. How did these early Christians make disciples? They did, as far as we know, we don't see and read about a lot of evangelism classes being taught. They didn't say, okay, we know you're sick, but come to this six-week discipleship class, and then we'll tell you how to know Jesus. Do you know how they, do you know how they changed the Roman Empire? Do you know how they went from being the most persecuted group in the Roman Empire? By the way, Christianity is still illegal. They are still being persecuted by the very empire that they're striving to save the people that are in it. How did they change it from being the most persecuted group to legal to where the emperor himself stands and says, I'm a follower of Christ? How do you change like that? It seems like it was just going out and loving their neighbor. And so, man, how does that 
How could that possibly apply to our world today? So many Christians want to change the world. You want to change your community. You want to change your government. You want to change your nation. I'm just going to give you a little bit of a sneak peek behind how to do that. You just love your neighbor as yourself. And you make a disciple of your neighbor. And then your neighbor, who's experienced the love of God, the love of Christ, and your love practically, will go out and love someone else and make a disciple. And I'm telling you, that's how you change the world. Behaviors, they change. Actions change. Thoughts change. We can talk about all that. But I'm going to tell you right now, and I've said this so many times, and I pray that some of you, it's starting to sink in and you're getting it. And some of you are doing this. And it's so exciting to see you guys loving your neighbors. I'm so blessed to be a part of a church that's demonstrating the love of Christ more so than I can even express verbally. But boycotting is not going to change the world. It's not. Now, you can boycott if you want to. You don't have to boycott. That's all your choice. I'm just telling you, that's not going to change the world. What will change the world, what Jesus said and what we've seen in history practically worked when Christians just were Jesus to their neighbors, to their communities. And by the way, read the rest of John 15. It doesn't always go well for the Christians that try to love the world. The Bible says they're going to hate you. Not everyone's going to come to Christ, but I'm telling you, if you get out there and you love your neighbor as yourself and you make disciples, God will use you to change this world. We've seen it in Scripture. We've seen it in history. Example of John 15. Do you know what the Roman Empire began to say right after this plague went through in 270? They blamed it on the Christians. They said, oh, no, no, the Christians started that plague. The Christians began to do that so that they could grow their church. That's what John 15 says. They're going to hate you. The more you show Christ, the more they're going to hate you. But you know what? It didn't change the church. It didn't change the amount of pagans that were saying, man, you guys stood fast. Our religious leaders fled. There must be something different about your God than these gods that we've worshipped. You know the difference? There's only one. Some of you may be sitting there thinking, like, I don't know if I believe that. I, I may not believe in gravity, but it affects me. I've said it before. I could jump off this building and say, I don't believe in gravity. And when I hit the ground, I've become suddenly aware that my belief or lack of belief in something does not make it true or untrue. Truth is truth. The Bible says that there is one way to the Father, and that's through Jesus Christ. And if you're here and you don't know Christ, then you're on a road that Jesus calls the wide road. And it leads to destruction. But there's a narrow road that you can choose to be a part of by receiving his grace and forgiveness of sins. Find salvation and be set free for eternity. Experiencing his love, which changes everything else. So I want to encourage you guys. Let's bow in a word of prayer. And we're just going to have a short invitation before we go to communion. And as we do this, I want you to just respond to him. Whatever God is doing to speak to you, would you just respond? Father, we pray that as we come together to worship you this morning, Father, as we come before you and prepare our hearts to receive this communion, I pray, Lord, that as we have this time of invitation, a time to just respond to your message, I pray that we would take just a moment or two to reflect, to evaluate, 
to think about how we, how we experienced your love at salvation, but how are we continuing in your love today? Are we abiding in your love? Are we abiding in the truth that we can draw closer and closer to you by your grace? Are we loving our neighbor as ourselves? Are we just loving our community? Father, it doesn't mean that we don't speak out against things. Father, if there's something in our community that we don't agree with, that we think is wrong, we can speak out against it. Father, loving someone doesn't mean ignoring wrongs. What loving someone means that in spite of their wrongs, we do everything within us to give them your grace and your mercy and to serve them. And so, Father, I pray that we would, as a, as a follower of Christ in this country, that we would utilize the rights given to us to speak out against things, to make our voice heard through voting boxes and, and everything else. That's all good. We need to do that. But I pray that before we speak the truth, we have to remind ourselves, are we speaking the truth in love? Or are we just aggressively trying to convince others that we're right and they're wrong? So, Father, thank you for your love. I know it's a simple message this morning, but I pray that it changes us and that we can in turn change this world for your glory. Father, be with this time this morning as we just honor you in all things and glorify you in all things. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning as we have a, just a short time of invitation? And so we're going to do just a verse or two, and then we'll, we'll come back together for communion. But would you respond to him? Maybe you want to come and pray. Thank him for his love. Thank him for what you've experienced. Come and pray for your neighbor or there in your seats. However God is speaking, would you respond to him as we worship?